0: Well, good morning. Happy New Year, everyone. Anyone stay up late to see the ball drop? A couple of you, all right. How many of you just decided like you were going to celebrate on London time, seven o'clock, go to bed? You are my people. Like, that is uh, how I aspire to be. Well, if you are just joining us, we have been on a long journey through the gospel of Mark. Um, Going through his telling of the Jesus story verse by verse, we've taken a few Breaks along the way. We started in October of 2021. Here it is, January 2023, and we are about at the halfway point. So as a way of kind of getting back into the swing of things, we put a visual summary of the gospel in the bulletin this week. Now, Mark essentially is a story told in two parts with a hinge in the middle. The first half begins with this declaration that a new kingdom is here, a new king has come. And Jesus reveals what that kingdom is like. He preaches a message of repentance and forgiveness of sins. He casts out demons, shows his authority over nature, heals the sick, restores people to community. Basically, he undoes all of the ways that sin and death have infected the world. And the big question that Mark keeps coming back to in this first part of the story is who is this? Second half of the story takes place in Jerusalem, where Jesus collides with the religious authorities, with his own disciples, with the political powers of Rome and Israel, and it all culminates in death and resurrection which is Mark's way of showing that Jesus is the king, but he is not the king that anyone expected him to be. And the hinge between these two parts is a section starting at 822 and continuing through 1052. This is the heart of what discipleship to Jesus is all about in Mark's gospel. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. So over the next eight weeks or so leading up to the season of Lent, this is where we're going to kind of park and spend our time. New year, new beginnings, a chance to kind of celebrate and restore our vision. So with that, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. We are in verses 22 through 9, chapter 1. Jesus and the disciples came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by hand and led him outside of the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, do not even go home into the village. Jesus and his disciples then went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets, but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. And now, almighty God, we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would come upon us so that we would not merely be hearers of your word, but we would be doers as well. We pray this in the name of the one who is the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Up here is uh, a slide of what remains of the city of Caesarea Philippi. Happens to be 25 miles to the north of the Sea of Galilee and in the first century it was situated at the northernmost border between Israel and the Gentile country. It's now in a thin slice of land between the borders of Lebanon and Syria in Israel. Now the city itself in the first century was not Jewish. It had fully embraced Paganism, this kind of mishmash of spirituality and religion that was common all throughout the Greco-Roman world. And just a few years before this scene that Mark describes, the city was given as a gift by Caesar Augustus to Herod the Great, the one who is from, you know, the Christmas story. Herod the Great, in turn, gave it to his son Philip as a present for his 16th birthday, which, you know, not bad, right? Right? And if you get a city for Christmas, I'm just saying, you might want to step it up next year. Now, as a way of paying respect, Philip built this gleaming marble temple into the hillside here, into these rocks that we see up here, uh, so that Caesar, who had recently been hailed as the Divi Filius, the son of God, could be worshiped. And then he renamed the city uh, Caesarea Philippi after Caesar and after himself. I guess if you get a city, that's what you get to do. You get to throw your name up in there. But the city's original name was Panius, and it was home to the Greek god Pan, whose grotto of the dancing goats also featured prominently along these cave walls. That's a picture of Pan in all of his glory. Now, people would come from all over the Roman Empire to worship and to frolic in the the grotto of Pan. Uh, He is that that wild-looking guy with the hindquarters, the legs, the the horns of a goat. And in the vast array of deities in the Greco-Roman world, he was the rustic god of of hunting, and a bunch of other things, Uh, uh, all things related to like parties and wild times and of course, fertility. Like a lot of the Greek gods, Pan was famously dissolute. His skill at seduction led to this kind of cult following, kind of like this early version of hookup culture. His sexual appetite was absolutely boundless. In fact, there is another statue of Pan that was found uh, in the ruins of this home that had been covered over from the ashes of the explosion at Mount Vesuvius. It was a graphic depiction of the god getting frisky with a goat. Imagine having that in your living room at your beach house. Now, that statue was unearthed in the 1700s, but it was not on public display until last century because it was too obscene. But actually, that stuff was really, really common in the Greco-Roman world. I opted not to show you the picture of that one. I did not need those emails. Now, I'm bringing all that up not for shock value, but to say that you know, there is this tendency in a kind of post-Christian cultural moment to romanticize and to kind of uh, glorify the ancient Mediterranean world. Essentially, the argument that many secular cultural theorists make is that Christianity was nothing more than an interruption in history, that we were on this trajectory before the Christian story of fall, uh, cre- you know, creation, fall, redemption, and, uh, and, and renewal ended, the the old order and transformed the world. The underlying thought is that now that we have jettisoned all of that Christian baggage, it's time that we got back to a golden age of a more free, more natural way of being human, unbound by repressive sexual or cultural boundaries. But at best, that is a very naive view of history. The Greco-Roman world was by every measure a human rights nightmare level of sexual exploitation alone was unlike anything even the most permissive corners of our post-Christian world would have seen or could possibly say would lead to human flourishing. So with all of that humming along in the background, Jesus decides to pull his disciples out of everything familiar to them and go on this little road trip to to draw back the curtain on his mission and his ministry. It's not in Jerusalem, it's not in Capernaum, it's not in David's city, Bethlehem, but it's in this place that is at the forefront of pagan spirituality and practice where the worship of Caesar and Pan weds power, authority, and dominion with unchecked sexual exploration and desire. Why does he bring them here? Why does he bring them to this place to have this conversation that all of Mark's gospel has been rolling up to up until this point, where it has been steadily building chapter after chapter, where he'll pose to them a question that will forever change the trajectory of their lives, that has indeed forever changed the course of history. Who do you say I am? Everything in their lives and in your life hinges on how you answer that question. And I think he asked it in a place that's unfamiliar where every rival vision of human flourishing is on display because he knows that there is no place on earth where they are free from the seductive voices of the culture or the curvature of their own heart's ambition. The disciples are going to see Jesus clearly. They're going to need to see him amid all of the noise. And so will we. This whole middle section of Mark's gospel is about seeing clearly. Now, the way that he tells this story is absolutely brilliant. It's almost like Mark had some divine help or something. Now, it's no coincidence that right before this conversation, um, Mark recounts this really bizarre miracle story where some people bring a blind man to Jesus and Jesus leads the man outside of the city, spits on the man's eyes and then touches him. That's not the strangest part of the story. The strangest part is that Jesus does all this and the guy does not see clearly at first. He sees people, but he says what? They look like trees walking about. So Jesus touches his eyes again and then he sees clearly. I mean, anyone else read that and think like, what, what's going on here? Like what's with the spit and the, 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 the two-step process involved? Like did Jesus not do it right the first time? Did he need to like check his stance? So, like what, what's, or is there something else going on? Well, without missing a beat, Mark changes the scene and Jesus takes his disciples away and he he asks them, you know, what's the word on the street? What's what are people saying about me? That is, when they look at me, what is it that people see? And so the disciples they give him the rundown. Like some say you are John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's that's one working theory. Others say you're Elijah, you know, the, the prophet who called fire down from heaven. Or if you're not like him, you're, you're one of the, the prophets from like back in the day who called out evil and injustice and corruption. And the point of this opinion poll is that people can see that Jesus is more than just a really wise and smart rabbi, right? They, they can see something, but it's not yet in clear focus. They see people, but it's like trees walking around. So Jesus presses in a second time. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And so Peter braves an answer. He says, you are the Messiah, which means literally you are the anointed one. And now all throughout the arc of the Old Testament, there is this expectation, there is this yearning for a Messiah, for this anointed one of God, this coming king out on the horizon who's gonna come and restore Israel's dignity, who's gonna come and restore the temple where where God's presence is known. He's gonna usher in this era of peace and beauty and shalom where relationships between people, between nations are all restored. And so the story of Israel, the world into which Mark is writing, the world into which Peter makes this confession is waiting on pins and needles for this Messiah to show up and put the world to rights. And Peter says, I think you are the one who's going to do this, Jesus This is a watershed moment. Up until now, there is this tension as you read through the gospel. You, the reader, are well aware that Jesus is the promised one, the Messiah. The very first line of the gospel is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark was written on the other side of the death and resurrection, and he announces from the very first sentence that Jesus is more than just a really great TED talk. But while you, the reader, know that, the disciples have yet to realize it. And so just now, for the very first time in Mark's story, they are coming awake to the reality that Jesus, yes, he is a rabbi, but he is so much more. And in this high drama moment where you would expect the, the music to start swelling to, this, to this, this crescendo for this inspirational moment where everyone looks around and, say, and, 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 they, and they get it, Jesus, like, it's like a, a needle scratching a vinyl record. He turns to them and says, don't say a word. Here's the thing, Peter might have the title right but he does not have a clue as to what that means. He sees Jesus, but his vision is blurry. And there are basically two things that that blind him, the voices and the expectations of his cultural background and the shape of his own heart's desires, neither of which fit who Jesus is or what he came to do. First, the cultural background. When, when Peter sees the Messiah, what most of Israel is looking for is a king who's going to lead people into battle and crush their enemies. He will bring peace, but it will be like the peace that Caesar brings, the kind that comes at the end of a sword, the kind that comes through power, through domination, through humiliation, And reading reality through that lens allows Peter to skip over all of the passages, all the prophecies in Isaiah about the the peaceful kingdom that the Son of Man is bringing into the world, about the servant who must suffer for the sins of his people. But all throughout the gospel, there is this expectation that the coming king would be a warrior. And Jesus is saying, yes, I am the king. But I did not come to topple a throne. I came to take up a cross. I came not to rule but to serve, to turn the values of the world on their head and break the spell that they are holding you under. That is how I am going to put everything right. So yeah, when when Jesus tells them the Messiah must come to, to suffer, and die, that that's where this story is headed. Peter, he cannot get behind that. The Messiah takes power, he does not give it up. That is not who your people need you to be, Jesus. But secondly, that is not who I want you to be. See, odds are, even with the best of intentions, a big part of Peter had just hoped that in Jesus he backed the right horse. That once this political victory would happen, he would be set for life. And I say that because in the very next chapter, the disciples are arguing about which one of them is gonna be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who would be second in command? They all had this vested interest in Jesus not being who he actually is. So when Jesus tells them for the first time that the way of the kingdom is the way of the cross, Peter is undone. He argues with Jesus. He tries to talk him out of it, which is exactly the same temptation that Satan offered him in the wilderness. And Jesus says, you still don't see. Track with me here. Like, this is not a conversation that just happened a long time ago. In a strange city far, far away, this is a conversation that happens in every heart, in every generation, and this story about a blind man leading up into these blind disciples is way more than just a clever literary technique. It's the writer's way of getting you to slow down and let Jesus take you aside, lead you outside of whatever you are in, and ask you, what about you? Who do you say I am? Let that question sink in. Listen to him and what he has to say about himself before you tell him who you think he needs to be. We all have a vision of who Jesus is. We all suffer from some sort of blindness because of that vision. Apostle Paul said it best, we see through a glass darkly, which is why we need Jesus to cut through all the ways that we make him in our own image and to heal our visions. Now, more often than not, our blindness to Jesus stems from the exact same thing as the, the disciples. It's the cultural narratives that we cling to and the turned inward desires of our heart. And just like in Mark's day, there is no shortage of opinion about who Jesus is. A few weeks ago, I was at a bookstore and uh, just for fun, I started thumbing through all these kind of popular level, you know, reimaginings of the historical Jesus that have kind of made the rounds and popped up in the last few years. I learned way more about the authors than I did about Jesus. There is a book about Jesus the sage, kind of a a wandering, detached spiritualist. There is another about Jesus the social justice warrior. He appeared on the same shelf as a, Jesus as a left-wing revolutionary, which was also on the same shelf as Jesus as a right-wing nationalist. There was Jesus the CEO, Jesus the prize fighter. There's a book about Jesus and baseball. That one was true. <laughs> there was even one about Jesus as like the original, you know, indie sleaze hipster vegan, right? No, the point is, it's really easy for Jesus to become just another projection of our own opinion, our own biases, our own desires, even our own wishful thinking, our own ethnic, our own socioeconomic or political background. We all have a mold that we want Jesus to fit into. I'm no different. There's a lot of things that Jesus says that I wish he didn't say. For example, left to my own devices, I could do without Jesus teaching on money. I I like comfort. I like security. So it's really tempting to make a Jesus who understands my need for those things, who's, who's too polite to challenge those things. But this is the same Jesus who says the only way you're going to save your life is to give up the one you think you want. And my guess is I'm not alone in that. And the problem with all that is is that discipleship to Jesus then becomes whatever furthers the cultural narrative that I have bought into or mirrors the desires of my heart, God becomes the one who gets me in life what I want, not the one who calls me to surrender my life. So it's not really a question of if you are blind, it is a question of where. Where do you not see Jesus clearly? And if you don't know, that is why you have a community, that is why we have scriptures. We're going through Mark at this kind of snail's pace, not skipping over the hard parts so we can see Jesus. So when we come to the things that don't fit our vision, we don't brush them aside, but we sit with them and let him read our hearts through them. We come to Jesus as he is in the gospels because sometimes it takes more than once for him to heal our blindness. We need to keep going back and back and back again. At at their very best, theology and spiritual practices are about the healing of your heart, the healing of your vision so that you see Jesus clearly and you start to align your soul with that vision. Because your vision of Jesus will actually determine the course of your life. Whatever that vision is, whatever it is that you set your eyes on will become the thing that you, you worship. It's like some secret law of the soul. You become like the thing that you worship. And, and even if you are on the fence about this whole endeavor of faith thing, if you, if you don't believe in God, like you are an ardent, committed materialist to the core, you will still in your mind, become like whatever it is that you value most, what your, your, your heart, what your mind, what your value system, whatever is the most important thing, wherever you place meaning, wherever you find ultimate value. And the question is, for all of us, is whatever that thing is, is it going to give you life? Or is it going to take life from you? And do you even see clearly enough to know what that thing is? The late novelist David Foster Wallace had this tortured relationship with faith. And I think that allowed him to gain a kind of clarity as he wrestled with this question. In his commencement address to students at Kenyon College, it's short, well worth the read, it's called This is Water. He said this, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and, and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power or, or over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about all these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. I love the honesty there. Anything else will eat you alive. This is exactly what Jesus is getting at when he says that those who want to save their lives will lose it, but whoever wants to save their lives will lose it for me and the way of the kingdom that is my gospel You know, both the word uh, life and soul that Jesus uses here, they're the exact same word in Greek. It's the word psyche. It's where we get the word psychology. Basically, the idea is the the, the core of yourself, the, the core of your existence, the thing that makes you you. You can put it this way. Jesus is saying that don't build your life, don't construct an identity on gaining the world, which is honestly how most of us build our lives. Truth is, we are all walking around in Caesarea Philippi. We live in a culture that wants to sell us on every which way to find a life. And the the truth is that it tells you that once you have arrived, that you are somebody, that's when you're going to have value. When someone builds a monument to you, when someone puts your name on the side of a building, when you found your most authentic self, Your most fulfilling self, whether that's through sexual exploration or individual autonomy or wealth or power or success, reputation, intelligence, you fill in the blank. It's all the same. It's all performance-based, achievement-based. But none of those things will ever bear the weight of your longing. You can gain the whole world and it won't be enough to contain the desires of your hearts or cover up this nagging sense that you are not enough. You build your life, you build your identity on those things. And when something goes wrong, you won't even feel like you have a self left. So Jesus' invitation really is just to get the dying out of the way so you can get on with living. Living. One way to frame the entirety of the spiritual journey is a a decrease in fear and an increase in trust. Another way to say that is to decrease this anxious striving to control the outcomes of your life, to to build an identity for yourself, to, to build a self on your own achievement. And an increase in your capacity to trust Jesus, that you're gonna find an identity in him. In the end, it's only when Jesus heals our vision, when he removes our fear, that we see him clearly. And it's only then that we actually can see ourselves clearly as well. Once you see a God who loves you enough to give up his identity so you can have one, you find the power and the hope to be free from all of those ways you have tried to construct an identity and build a self. There's this great section at the end of Mere Christianity where C.S. Lewis comments on Jesus' call to lose yourself, to find yourself. He writes this The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let Him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are all waiting for us in Him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surrounding and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and which I cannot stop. What I call my wishes become merely the desires thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other men's thoughts." It is when I turn to Christ, when I give up myself to his personality, that I finally begin to have a real personality all of my own. The more clearly you see him, the more like him you become and paradoxically, the more like yourself you become because you were made to bear his image. This is how it's possible to live in the kingdom now, to not taste death before the kingdom comes in power. It's when you hand over to Jesus every aspect of your lives, to this Jesus who calls us not only to believe in him, but to take the life that he took on. Not because fitting into Jesus into the lives that we so desperately want to cling to is gonna save us, but because when we, make, when we lay down our lives to make room for him that's when he can transform us. The way of the kingdom is the way of the cross. It looks to all the world like death, but it does not end there. There is resurrection on the other side, and, and Jesus, when he asks us to follow him, he is simply inviting us to live in his wake. Lewis closes his chapter on losing your life to find it with this and I can't think of a better way to close, so I'm just gonna read it to you. Give up yourself, and you'll find your real self. Lose your life, and you'll save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing that you nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. And with him everything else thrown in. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we come here this morning because we wanna see you. And in the midst of all of our expectations and our longings, amid all of our hopes and our fears, let us hold back nothing from you. And so we ask that you would send your spirits to restore our vision that we might see you as you are and not as we want you to be And Father, we ask that as we come to this table, let us trust your grace not to look on us as we are in ourselves, but on us as we appear in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.